2: Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. Dr. Rangan Chatterjee is regarded as one of the most influential medical doctors in the UK and hosts the most listened to health podcast in the UK and Europe, Feel Better, Live More. His first three books have all been number one Sunday Times bestseller, and his latest, Feel Better in Five, shows people how to transform their health in just five minutes. Dr. Chatterjee regularly appears on BBC News and television and has been featured in numerous international publications, including the New York Times, Forbes, The Guardian and Vogue. And his TED Talk, How to Make Disease Disappear, has been viewed almost three million times. Wow. It's very impressive, Rangan. And Rangan lives in the Northwest with his family. So you have two children with Rangan, don't you? Could you tell us a little bit more about them?
0: Yeah, I've got two children. Um, happily married. My son is uh, 10 years old. My daughter's seven. And I guess we're sort of like a regular family. We do regular things. We like going for walks at weekends. Just, I would say, a regular, happily married family guy.
2: Regular with a lot of impressive achievements <laughs> and his name. Um, but you are, you have a South Asian heritage, don't you? Your parents came from India.
0: Yeah, so Dad came over I think in 1962. So um back in the 1960s the 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 British government were actively recruiting doctors from the Indian subcontinent to fill holes and gaps that they had in the health service here. And I think there's a there's a philosophical point there as to whether that's the right thing to do. I think number 1 But certainly I think people like my dad were very happy to come. They certainly saw this as a a step up, an opportunity. I remember before dad died, I remember talking to him a lot about it. And he said, you know, if I stayed in India, I wouldn't, I didn't know that if I worked hard, I'd be able to get my own house and have my own place. But I knew if I came to the UK and I worked hard, I could get rewarded for that. It's really interesting for me to reflect on that when he told me that, because it's probably the sort of thing I've taken for granted, because that's my norm having grown up in this country. And certainly I will say that my mum and dad, like many immigrants over to the UK, worked extremely hard. I would passionately say, massively contributed to society here. And if I'm honest, they've given me a, a, an amazing upbringing and I've been very privileged and fortunate to have a great education growing up, uh, exposed to lots of different things. I think my mum and dad parented quite differently. You know, uh, dad worked hard you know, he was keen for us to get good grades. Mum was as well, but I, I will say my mum, which I think it was quite unusual for Indian mums at that time, she would push me in music and sports and wanted me to do everything I spoke to her recently, she said, wrong, and that's because you're capable. I knew you were, and I didn't want you to be, what does she call it? An intellectual robot, I think, something like that. She said, I wanted you to do the arts, do sports, express yourself. And um, I'm really grateful. I really see the value of that now. Particularly, you know, I it, it's, you know, you you, you read out a, a lovely bio Um But what's interesting to me is I do lots of different things, and I think in many ways that's because those different things were encouraged in me as a child. It wasn't just about getting A grades. It was, you know, I I used to play four instruments. Um, I was in three sports teams. You know, I did lots and lots of different things.
2: That's really interesting to hear of your background and experience and also of your parents' experience of coming here as a first-generation immigrant and and contributing to the society and being of value to the society. But we were talking earlier about your own experiences growing up and of knowing or talking about race and racism and how that shaped your own sense of identity. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how how you were growing up and whether race or racism was a conversation you were having at that time
0: yeah it's interesting If I think back I don't really remember a set time where we spoke about it I you know it, it can always be a bit vague sometimes trying to remember things from your childhood but it certainly doesn't feature prominently in my memory that oh yeah we used to talk about this No, actually, I don't think mum and dad spoke about it much. In fact, I don't think I knew properly of the racism my dad faced until maybe a year or two before dad died. He never mentioned it. But that really is reflective of who he was and his attitude, which was keep quiet, don't make a fuss, get your head down and do well. So I very much absorbed that. It was only, you know, dad, unfortunately, when he was in his late 50s, he got very sick. He had to retire from being a doctor, from someone who had never been unwell in his entire life. He gets uh, lupus, which is also an immune illness. Um, His kidneys fail. I come back in the middle of the night from Edinburgh, being told he's in intensive care. He probably won't make it through the night. And that's when his kidneys fail. And then my whole adult life, the first 15 years were all to do with moving back to the northwest. Looking after dad with mum and my brother. And this really, really had a huge impact on me. But it was only in those last couple of years when dad was sick. I remember he said a couple of things. He said, he told me what had happened in his career. I was like, why did he never say this before? Uh, one of the things he told me, he used to be an uh, obsingyny surgeon. He used to love it, absolutely loved it. And he said, you know, it was interesting that he was, and I've heard this from his colleagues since dad died, said, your dad was a brilliant surgeon. I mean, he never said that to me. I never knew that. But they said he was brilliant. He was fast. He was efficient. And I was, I was like, oh, wow. I didn't know that about dad. You know, I just didn't know that. But he did tell me he used to, he would be training people. He was a registrar at the time, which is sort of the grade just below consultants. And he'd be training people how to do operations, teaching them. A couple of years later, they're jumping him, they're consultant. And he would keep doing this year after year. And suddenly he's like, oh, I'm staying still. I'm training all the white guys. A few years later, they're jumping me and becoming consultants. And so he made the decision that actually in the field of obstetrics and gynecology in this country, I am not going to get a consultant post. It's not going to happen. So he moved to a field within medicine that if I'm honest, I don't think he enjoyed. I don't think he liked at all. But he did it for his family. He did it for job security. He moved. He did, you know, look, I'm aware that, you know, being a doctor is regarded as a good profession to be in, you know, with certain benefits. But actually, if I think about my dad, I don't think he was happy. I think he loved delivering babies. He loved doing operations. Um, And he felt he couldn't continue doing that. So he changed his job. Um, So... I think that was dad's experience. He did say to me, I do remember this. He said to me, this wasn't my first country. You know, I moved here. The things I've had to put up with, you're not going to put up with because you were born here. And that, that stayed with me. I really remember that. He almost accepted it. But hey, look, I'm an immigrant here. That's just what I've got to put up with. But you, you're different. You're born here. You're not going to put up with it in the same way. And I think he was right. On one level, I'm not going to put up with it. But on many levels, I have. I've absorbed that, that view that you don't make a noise. You don't make a fuss. You keep quiet and you get on with things. You just achieve. right? So I've done that. But it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost of unhappiness, a deep... Um, lack of fulfillment in what you're doing. But it's something I'm, I'm openly addressing and embracing over the past few years. So I feel I'm coming into my power now that I understand it and I'm giving it visibility where previously there was none. So did we talk about it as kids? No. The thing I remember was literally, and I think this is very common in many immigrant families, particularly Asian immigrants, which is you've got to do really well at school. And when I say, well, you've got to be top of the class. You know, if I came back saying I got 96%, it's like, why didn't you get 100%? Right? If I came back and I was second, it's like, why weren't you first? So you grow up with that mentality. And I tell you the toxicity from that is, the toxicity is that you then start to value yourself. You think you're only valuable to other people, to the world around you when you're top dog. And that is something I'm working really hard or have worked really hard to let go of. And I think by and large, I have. And I feel happier by not living up to this external pressure. It's really a case of, well, do I feel happy with what I've done? Am I proud of that? Yeah, that's good enough.
2: Wow, there's so much there and uh, yeah, so much to relate to. And I think a lot of first generation, but also second generation and Asian immigrants, as you say, or people with Asian background and origin might relate to that. And I certainly relate to that. Absolutely. Trying to fit in, coming in to this country with a sense of gratitude, I suppose, where you feel like you're an other, Um, you're not part of the, the culture or society because of your skin color or your background but bringing your children up to be good to be really work 10 times as hard so that they fit in they achieve so that they're of value to society and I think that's the model minority more I think that we all aspire to and conform to that if we are a model minority and we are seen of value to society then we would not face any bias or discrimination and I think when I read about like the tiger mother or the stereotype of Asian parents who are pushing their children to do as well, I often think about it's because they don't have the luxury to not do well, I suppose, or talk about failures or to fail because it's almost like other people are expecting them to fail or you to fail. So you have to counter that by being so good. And I know that I pushed my older daughter so much and we've had talks and conversations about it. Um, it was just like a natural thing. Yes, why didn't you get 100%? What was stopping you from it? On one side, you think, yes, my child is so much capable, so I'm going to encourage them to do everything. But on the other hand, you want them to do so well because they, you are aware that you will they will face barriers and obstructions. So you're already countering them by making them so good that they have less of those Barriers in their lives I suppose isn't
0: it yeah uh, well, what's interesting for me if I think about my parenting style with my kids it's kind of almost the opposite I'm almost rebelling against that and saying oh, are you happy you know are you you know did you enjoy that um and again I'm not saying either one is right or wrong in fact there is no right or wrong right i my parents were doing the best that they could they just wanted me to be happy and their way of of um increasing the likelihood of that happening was to make sure I did well in education, right? And I get it and I, and I love them for it. And I've got to be careful, I think, that I don't go to the other extreme with my kids who I think are very capable and are uh, certainly capable of achieving well. But I think for me, it comes down to what do you want for your kids? Do you want them to be happy and fulfilled? Or do you want them to have society's definition of success because I don't think they're always the same thing.
2: Yes, absolutely. And I think the sense of fulfillment and well-being is so important for our children to know their sense of identity, to be secure in it. And I think our model of painting is changing now. It's more purposeful, it's more engaged, it's more about understanding that every child is unique and special and to, to know that there are more opportunities for them now and and I suppose how how do we make sure that their sense of identity is secure is a really important point when we come to talking about race and racism as well. So how do you talk to your children about race and racism? When was the first time you really acknowledged that this was something you ought to be doing?
0: Yes, good question. I think your latest book, Wish We Knew What To Say, has certainly changed my perspective on how and when we should have these conversations with our children. Of course, I can't turn the clock back, so I have done what I have done. I think very much I didn't initially because I felt that by doing so, they might start to see problems where no problems exist. They may start to think, oh, that was because of racism. Oh, was that racism? Was it something else, right? And so i have been very conscious for them not to feel like that, which is probably just the way I was brought up. And how many times did we replicate our imprinting by our parents with our own children? But I think things have changed a little bit. my wife's been excellent. She's been super good at being uh, making sure there's diversity in the books that we read to our children. You know, dolls. Which we don't have many dolls. My daughter's not that into dolls, but making sure that I think the first doll she had was a doll with black skin or dark brown skin, and not the the white skin with blonde hair Barbie doll. Um. My daughter's had this book now for a good couple of years. It's, I think, it's a Penguin book about uh, is it fifty black women. It's awesome. Like, you know, sometimes I think a couple of nights ago I was reading. You know, we just pick pick a page at random and read a story. I think that's how she learned about Rosa Parks. And so it's through that storytelling or through reading Rosa Parks' story that we started to have a conversation about. Oh, you know, so what do you think about that, darling? That, you know, she couldn't sit on a particular seat in the bus because she had black skin. And I can't remember what she said, but she was like, well, it's not fair, is it? It's just ridiculous. And and I've learned, as I have with many aspects of parenting, I've learned when you actually open up with your kids, they teach you so much. She could see it clearly, that's not fair. Oh, it's that simple right you can have a conversation and it's that simple yeah that's not fair you're right we shouldn't we should try to make sure we treat people fairly so it's kind of come up through these things um i know we've just recorded you on on, on my show and i shared with you the the incident where uh at a at a local festival where uh six people in her year this is probably when she was six years old where they all had a poem or something to recite. And again, I, I, as I've acknowledged before, you know, of course, I'm her father. So I have a, a bias around that. But I'm, you know, I, look, trying to take that bias away. She was amazing, super capable. I think most other parents, including the teacher, thought she'd win. And she came last. And I don't know that that is racism, right? I can't prove that to you, but I know the festival. I know I saw the lady who was judging. She's probably mid-70s, you know, white skin, um, a certain privileged upbringing, Uh, and that's okay. I'm not judging her for that. There's nothing wrong with that. But could it be that because of that, she had a bias against my daughter and couldn't see the potential of someone Wonderfully speaking, this poem to the point where pretty much everyone else in the room thought she'd be first or even 2nd I'm pretty sure I know what I think, um, but then there was a discomfort. What do we do? What do we say to her? Because she was confused. She was confused, like particularly with someone else. She goes, "They're not usually that good." I'm pretty sure I said it better, like in her way, in a way that she's a really kind, compassionate uh, little girl. And it was, it was tricky because I don't want to put in her head that that happened because of her skin colour. But I don't want to deny it either. And so I don't think we've properly addressed it in terms of race. We just simply addressed it as, hey, darling, you know what? Um, everyone's got different opinions. That's one person. That's her opinion. I and mean, she's entitled to her opinion. What's your opinion of what you did? Are you happy? She goes, yeah, I loved it. I thought I performed the poem really well. It made me feel good. I said, okay, well, focus on that because as you go through life, you're going to find people all the time who've got different opinions to you and that's okay. You don't have to agree with their opinions. So I don't feel I've had a proper structure in my head. I think your 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 new book is, is a great way of giving me and other people some practical guidance on what they can do. Um, but I... I you know, maybe I'm being a bit harsh on on, on on myself, which is I have a tendency to do. I mean, we, we have, you know, if my daughter or my son will say or mention, oh, that person's got different color skin, we'll go, yeah, isn't that interesting? Amazing, isn't it? Isn't it great? The world's got so many different people with different color skins. Wow. Everyone's unique. Everyone's different. So I guess we have conversation. We don't hide things from the kids. If it comes up, we'll lean into it, we'll embrace it and have a conversation. So I can't really give you a perfect answer, but I think these are my efforts at bringing up race and these sort of things uh, with my two children.
2: No, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that those that experience, which is kind of heartbreaking in itself because from a young age you have to make children aware that the world is not always fair, you know? There is unfairness built into it. But I think six is young to really make it explicit about race and racism, as you say, because we cannot be sure. And I think we can always, that is the whole problem with these topics, because we can feel like we are overreacting or we are imagining things or we are imagining a problem. But I suppose the main thing is that we raise our children not to feel like victims always, like they are empowered to do anything Their skin color might become a barrier at some point and in certain cases, but that means that they can create change as well by being certain way. And what you're saying about bringing diverse books and media is absolutely essential. And I think that's how that's what we can do as parents from a young age about seeing role models, about representation and and just seeing different people like them and what you are doing with your show, I suppose, is also a way of having that representation for them that people of skin color are not constricted or restricted to certain domains or certain boxes because of their skin color.
3: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers.
1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: What do you think as we are both brown-skinned and we are both for South Asian um, heritage, so I'm very conscious about how within our community we don't talk much about race and racism. How do you think we our people, other people who are listening from our community, from Indian community, South Asian community, can what can we do or what should we be really aware of within our communities?
0: Yeah, I think any change in life that either we want for ourselves or we want to create for society, the first step is awareness, right? If we're kidding ourselves, if we're not aware of what's going on, we can't really make change, so one thing I would say about my sort of my community, the South Asian community is that we're pretty good at identifying when there's racism against us, but potentially not so good at identifying when we also um, have racist tendencies or 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 have a bias against other races, right? And I think black skin. Is probably one that comes to mind. I think there is a little bit of bias, probably more than a little bit of bias. There, there is a bias against black skin by certain people. Again, I, I want to be super clear. I'm not saying everyone. I'm not saying that, you know, these are these are not homogenous groups where everyone thinks the same way. But I would certainly say I feel there is certain sentiments. Uh I've seen, you know. I'm from a South Asian sort of Hindu community, I guess, by background. Uh, I have seen within it a bit of anti-Islamic sentiment, uh, a bit of anti-Black sentiment, not by everyone at all, but a few people. And I think really, if we're going to sort of create change in the world, we have to be able to flag it in our own families, in our own communities and say, hey, look, you know, I'm very clear in my head that the way to make change is not to fight with people, not to get their backs up, but I think the way you engage determines a lot of the outcome. And so let's say someone is listening to this and let's say their, their mother has a certain view, okay, that maybe was imprinted upon them by their parents or in a very different world in a very different culture in a very different time i think it's okay to say hey mom look you know uh, you know what you said like do you really think that's true because if we're going to treat people equally and fairly i'm not sure and you've always raised me to do that um i'm not sure that that comment is consistent with that what do you think You know, or however they feel is comfortable. I think that sort of approach rather than, oh, you can't say that. Oh, I cannot believe you said that. You're a hypocrite. You brought me up like this and now you're saying that. I think which approach you choose to take will often determine whether someone listens and actually thinks, yeah, I'm I'm gonna think about that. But also you've got to accept that you can't change everyone. You can flag it but maybe the person you're telling doesn't want to hear it. I think that's when it gets really tricky because people often ask me as a doctor, you know, Dr. Chashi, you know, I've, I've, I've taken your recommendations. I've, I've changed the way I feel. I've changed my health, but I can't get my mum to do it. Or I can't get my brother to do it or my best friends. And say, what can I do? And the advice I often give is I say, I don't think you can. They don't want to hear it from you, Right. It's often the people closer to us who don't want to hear it from us, they'll hear it in a different way. So if you have tried and you've said it in a compassionate way, maybe you've just planted that seed. Maybe you're not going to get a resolution there, but maybe they'll be thinking about that in their quiet times, at the weekends, and maybe in a month or two, they'll come back to you. Right? I feel with health and well-being, that's the way to help the people closest to make change. And I've got to believe, because human behavior is human behavior maybe that's the way we can create change when it comes to race and those people close to us as well
2: yes absolutely there's so much there what you say is so much truth in it because i think we have to acknowledge that even though we don't have to homogenize everybody in our in south asian community or indian community there are certain things that we grow up with or people grow up with and our attitudes and beliefs are shaped by our upbringing and that is why we're talking about how we bring up our children because that is how we were brought up and our beliefs have been cha- shaped by that, or our parents or anybody close to us. And so that affects how we see other people and how we see ourselves. And I think kindness and a consideration of that is really important when we address that within our community and we talk to perhaps the previous generation or a generation which is more seeped into that, those beliefs and attitudes. But we have to acknowledge it because even when we are talking about Black Lives Matter, I saw with a lot, it was very triggering for the lot of Indian people because it reminded them of the racism they've experienced when they first came to this country or the their, their parents might have faced. It was really triggering for them. But I think we have to remember when we center ourselves and when we talk about our experience as well, because at that time... It wasn't our experience to talk about when we were talking about Black Lives Matter. And I think the problem there is why it came up so much was that the first time we were having these conversations around race and racism, because for a long time, people had to keep a lid on it. For a long time, we couldn't say we are facing these microaggressions in the workplace. We've been discriminated against. We've been called names. We've faced these barriers and these oppressions. And I think suddenly it was so triggering for people. And that raises a point about having more of these spaces where people can voice these yeah. stories because everybody's like dying, desperate to share their experiences, but are not able to because often people have said, oh, you're overreacting or, oh, there we go again, talking about racism, you know, so people don't share it. And I think at that point, I think it felt... Like we had to be an ally to black people rather than talking about our experiences as brown people, about the racism we faced. We had to center black people because it was about the oppression black people had faced, which is very different from what the oppressions we faced. Um, What black men or black boys faced when they go out on streets or the perceptions against them is quite different from what brown men or brown people face. But I think that does raise a very crucial point of having more of these spaces or more of these platforms where people can really talk about it openly. And I think that is also missing within the South Asian community because there is a certain amount of shame. We talked about it with, in your podcast as well, shame about talking about these experiences because we don't want to voice these things that we have faced, I think. As well. Yeah,
0: I think you're right. I think we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to... It's, it's such a complex myriad of emotions like you know sometimes when you've experienced it but then you start to second guess yourself if I bring it up oh am I just you know trying to gain attention uh will people believe me they'll say you can't prove it you're like well yeah you know I can't prove it uh, did it really happen that way am I imagining it now uh will people think I'm a troublemaker you know, it will 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 it reduce my opportunities in the future? Because oh, you know, we could do without that. We could do without people raising, that that you know, uh, speaking out about these uncomfortable issues. Um, so I think it's incredibly tricky. But I think that the, the wider point is very much as you say that people need to feel that they can speak freely about this, and there are safe spaces to to express how they feel. And I will say that also applies not just for. And, as we said on my podcast, I, I really don't like a lot of the terms that are used you know bame i i I personally feel no affinity to that term at all. Um, I think everyone needs a voice for this, even if you're living in a, in a in a society which is where white skin is the predominant skin color. I actually feel many people with white skin also feel nervous and scared about talking about this they many people want to learn want to go, oh, you know, what? I didn't know about that. I'd, I'd love to learn more, but they're scared of speaking up in case they get, you know, the social media police on them, um, making them feel bad. And then that's it. You've lost the opportunity. Um, it's like, I don't want an analogy, as a GP, you learn that, or I have certainly learned And you see this with men a lot who don't typically see the doctor, you know, they often want to keep it to themselves. They don't want to go and visit a doctor, right? But when they do come in, you see, this person hasn't been in for four years. What's going on here? They pop in and it's often not the first thing they talk about. They come in often with something trivial. The classic giveaway is, hey, doc, I don't want to bother you. My my, my wife made the appointment for me. You know, she said I had to come and get this checked out. I'm like, okay, all right. I heard that. Let's just see where we go with this conversation. But often how you interact there will determine their experience for the next five, 10 years with with their doctor. And I'm always careful. I'm always mindful. Is this what they're really in for? Or is there something else underneath? And often that's just a red herring. Actually, they're really struggling with their mood or they feel depressed or they're having libido issues with their partner, something that they feel nervous to talk about, but they come in with something else. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is, the way I see it, if we want to make change, we're not talking about this stuff enough. So when anyone does enter that conversation, I think we need to embrace it and go, hey, okay, great that you're talking about it. So I think if we think, oh, you're not talking about it in the right way. You're not talking about it at the right time. Oh, you can't say that. You don't say that. When you talk about race, you've got to say it like this. People are going to go, you know what? I'm out. I'm out. I don't want it to be part of this. I just get on with my life. And I actually feel that even many people who've been well-intentioned around this without realizing it have put people off from engaging in the conversation and, uh, I think we've got to try and change that.
2: No, I I agree with that. Yes, there is a cancel culture and people, I think, get scared of, especially on social media, because we're engaging more on social media these days about how we talk about things. And yes, it's our responsibility to learn the vocabulary. I think the vocabulary around it is so contentious sometimes, so confusing It is our responsibility to do the learning, to go away and do the learning rather than rely on certain people to educate us. But I think, yes, we need to have empathy and kindness. We need to give people a chance. And we need to be aware of dissenting voices as well. Otherwise, we are stuck in these echo chambers where we just shut people out. I think we need to be aware of that. So, in terms of your own children, um, I know when we were talking about earlier, you were talking about how during your teens you perhaps rejected some of your own background or Indian heritage because you wanted to conform with your peers, and that happens a lot with children uh, from from different or uh, immigrant children, especially or different heritage, because they code switch—they're one way at home and they're one way outside. Sometimes, with it, with your own children, how? do you make sure you're instilling a sense of pride in them?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's something that I've thought about a lot because I feel it is different. I feel what I and my wife do with our kids, certainly I can't really speak for her, but speaking for myself, I think it's very different. I, I think the perception from him may be different. So what I mean by that is, I was aware my mum and dad had a different accent. Um, they spoke a different language. So at home, you know, they they converse in Bengali, right? So English wasn't the spoken voice at home. It was Bengali. But my son and my daughter are going to hear English spoken at home because my A... My wife and I were both born and brought up in the UK. B, she's Gujarati, I'm Bengali. So we don't even share the same uh, language to even converse in. So they hear English. And I guess they also, they probably don't see Daddy as being, I don't don't know because I'm not them, but I I suspect they don't see Daddy as, oh, he sounds different. You know, I kind of sound like them. And I guess... I guess they see me being, in inverted commas, successful. And I taught them a lot about Indian culture and heritage. They One thing they get that I didn't get is they see their grandparents a lot. They see my mum a lot. They see my wife's parents a lot. And so they are growing up with this sort of sense of culture around them, that I didn't have. You know, we, it was just us four. It was my mum, my dad, me and my brother. That was kind of it. You know, we didn't have any other family. I'd seen my family once every two years in the summer when we went to India. So I kind of feel that they're getting a certain style of upbringing that I didn't get. But we talk about it. So what do we do? Like before each meal? Again, this is, this is me really embracing my heritage. We say a mantra before each meal. Right? I didn't do that when I was a kid. I didn't do that three years ago. But I'm really into thinking, you know, from a health perspective, I think it's important to make a break between work and doing and eating. I think half the reason we have digestive problems is because not because of what we're eating, it's how we're eating. We're rushing around. We don't we don't have a transition time between work and meal time. And so we have a transition time, and we'll say a month together that vids um, we'll say a month or two together that my wife's mum taught us and it's just a lovely bonding experience but I didn't do that as a kid. I would, you know, I, I would have cringed at that a few years ago but they're having that as a sense of their normal. You know, we often meditate together as a family. They've got beads to do meditation. I've got beads to do meditation so we talk about this. And so, I feel that we're being more open and things are. it it's funny, you know, as, as I mentioned before, that in my teenage years I kind of rebelled away from my Indian culture and my heritage. And I think as I've got older into my twenties, into my thirties, and certainly now into my forties, I very much am proud to be Indian or to have an Indian background, you know. And and actually identity, I, I, I struggle with this whole idea, idea of you know, I was used to think, how do, how do you define yourself? Are you British? Are you Indian? Are you a British Indian? You know, And now where I'm at, like, I, don't, I don't like defining myself in any way at all. I'm a human being living on planet Earth. And I'm lucky that I feel it's great. I've been exposed to uh, a rich, ancient culture from India. I've also been exposed to uh, Western British culture. And I feel... I can choose what I like from both. I feel, how lucky am I? Instead of it being, uh, uh, you know, like a monkey on my back, I just think, how lucky. I I, am now got fully exposed. I can choose which elements of Indian culture I like, which ones I don't particularly like, which ones of British culture do I like, which ones do I not like, and I can bring them into my life. So I'm not sure if this is quite answering your question or not, but this is how... These are, these are some of the things that we do um, at home uh, to sort of make sure that our Indian heritage lives on and through with our children.
2: Well, Thank you for sharing that. I think that's really beautiful. And what I'm getting from that is that as parents, first of all, we have to be proud of who we are and confident and secure in that and I think that's when we start passing it on because again children see that discomfort as well if we are trying to hide parts of our away ourselves away as well and I think as as children as bringing up children here I worry about that a little bit because I don't speak Hindi at home my husband doesn't know any Hindi and and so I feel like and we celebrate Christmas with a lot of enthusiasm which is okay but I'm actively trying to bring in Indian festivals, even though it is inconvenient at times and I don't have any other family here. Um, and actively singing to them in Hindi, in lullabies sometimes, and I was really interesting because they don't speak any Hindi, but my four-year-old heard a Kishore Kumar song in the car one day. And now she just wants to listen to that every day and say, I love his voice and she doesn't understand it. And that gave me a lot of joy because I felt like she was connecting in some way to where I come from, you know, what I grew up with. And I think that is all we can do and I think it's true and it that's how we have to raise our children that they yeah. can choose whichever part of their culture or heritage they want and be secure in that they don't have to conform to a label or yeah, stereotype. yeah
0: I, I think that's the key isn't it we want our kids to be secure know their own identity and ultimately they are they're their own people right they've got their own lives and in some ways and actually this goes for a multicultural society as well. Isn't it wonderful that we can be exposed to so many different viewpoints, languages, uh, cultural dress sense? I go, "Hey, you know well, quite like a bit of that, like a bit of that. Not sure about that. And then we can all be these unique expressions of all the wonderful um, different cultures and, and, uh, and practices there are all over the world. It's funny, you know, as you were describing that. I was thinking you know one thing I've never done and I still feel uncomfortable doing is I guess I never really wear Indian attire much anyway I guess my dad really didn't either so I probably learned that from him but if we were ever going to like Durga Puja or a Indian festival I'm not sure I'd feel comfortable wearing it and stopping off at the petrol pump to fill up you know, I'd probably have my coat on or like put a hoodie on on top. You know, I, I I'd have to sit with it. and think about it, but I, but yeah, it, it really it really feeds into what you were just saying, which is we have to feel comfortable in who we are ourselves. We need to be proud of it if we're going to actually start, you know, exposing our our children to it.
2: No, absolutely, and I think. That thing with the dress, uh, I suppose, yes, my teenage daughter rejected a lot of that when she was growing up. Every time I said, why don't you wear your langa or something we bought in India when we were last there, she would say, no, I'm not going to wear it. How do we make sure that our children take pride in it and make sure that they are comfortable with dressing like that without thinking it's like a fancy dress? It's been great speaking with you, Rangan, I think. It's really interesting to hear your perspective and how as a British born uh, Indian person, person with an Indian heritage, how you're raising your children um, in a kind of a diverse, uh, multicultural family, because your wife is Gujarati and you are Bengali as well. And so they are exposed to these different sides within the Indian heritage as well. Do you have any recommendations for parents in terms of books or anything else they could be doing just as we are wrapping up?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. So It's funny. I don't feel like I'm an expert in this area at all. Yeah, exactly who is. I guess all I can speak is my truth, the way I see things. And I have been reflecting on this a lot and I've changed a lot in how I view this. So I would say your book you know, wish we knew what to say. I think it's a great guide for people. You know, you, you as I say, you bring, you're bringing ideas that are sort of out there, but people don't know about them. You're giving a vocab. You're giving a way of talking about them. So I definitely would recommend that for people. Um, but I would just say, you know, lean into your discomfort. Don't move away from it. You know, kids are very, very intuitive. They pick up on stuff all the time. And often they'll pick up on things that you yourself are uncomfortable with and haven't come to terms with. So, um, you know, be open. Don't shy away from it. No matter what color skin you've got, if your kids bring something up and they notice that someone else has got a different color skin, embrace it. Go, wow, isn't that amazing? Yeah, well noticed. You know, aren't we, isn't it an incredible world where there are people with all kinds of different skin? We're all unique. You know, don't move away from it because I think kids Pick it up when there's parental discomfort. So as you also say is I think as parents, the onus is on us to start understanding why we're uncomfortable about these conversations. Start getting comfortable with these conversations. And if anyone, if anyone's sceptical, I suspect they wouldn't be listening to this podcast in the first place if they were sceptical, but if they think why is this so important, the reason this is important is because we have to be the change that we want to see in the world. Diversity, equality, it all comes from us. If we're happy to not have that conversation with our children, if we're happy to think it's too hard, then we need to be happy and okay with the fact that the world, world's going to be unfair. There's going to be discrimination in the world because if we can't be bothered to face inward with it and sort it out on our own turf, How do we expect the world to change, right? It's that important. You don't need to feel guilty about things you have done in the past. You don't need to feel guilty about things that have happened way before you were born, but you can't change that. But what you can change is go, hey, look, I'd love to learn more. I wanna understand more. I wanna help bring up my children in the world where they treat everyone fairly and with respect, whether it's a boy or a girl, whether it's someone with white skin, brown skin or black skin, doesn't matter. Because if you ask most parents and you say, would you like that for your kids? I'm pretty sure the answer is yes.
2: I can't think of more empowering and positive words to end it on. That was really fantastic, Rangan. That was really great. And I'm a huge fan of your podcast. So do listen to that. And um, yeah, thank you so much for giving up your time. It's been lovely speaking with you. Thank you.
0: You too. Thank you.
2: This was Wish We Knew What to Say with me, Pragya Garwa. Thank you so much for listening.